0: Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga Hangout. Dragonlance Hangout, not Saga Hangout. Anyway, welcome. Is Lenar's Floor Green, the 14th. It's Mother's Day. My name's Adam. So I'd like to take a moment and uh, thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the links in the description below. And you can always pick up Dragonlance Gaming materials using my affiliate links. And for all those mothers out there, happy, happy, happy Mother's Day. What do you guys do for Mother's Day? It, it's like one of those things where as a adult, I just sort of, call my mom <laughs> i just talked to her on the phone for a little bit but it is i don't know like there's a, an entire culture based around mother's day that sort of exploded so it's now in my area the most uh commercial holiday even more than christmas says uh, the people working in the st- retail outlets in the grocery stores and stuff which is crazy mother's day is the busiest but they say it is. And they're the ones working it. So you gotta, gotta kind of trust them, right? It's kind of weird. I never thought of Mother's Day as a particular celebratory day other than just saying, you know, happy Mother's Day or doing something, you know, for her or getting her a card or getting some flowers or something like that. Like, I figure birthdays are infinitely more important. There are other holidays that are infinitely more interesting, like Halloween or Christmas over Mother's Day to be the biggest commercial? I don't know, that's strange. Hey Jason, how you doing man? Say uh, happy Mother's Day to your ex. Oh, nice. And that's the other part of it, is that Mother's Day isn't just your mama, right? It could be your baby mama. So make sure you're doing something for your baby mama if you got one. Um, Even if that's just making sure that the kids do something for her. Because ultimately, it's just one of those days where they're supposed to take a load off and everything is supposed to be taken care of by everyone else, right? And in general, I don't even really like the idea of having to go out and buy things in order to showcase your affection to someone. That seems strange to me, right? I mean, I'm in infinitely more interested in, you know, you, you uh, create a, a fashion a drawing or maybe you craft something together and you give that to her, or you know, maybe you're, you're doing chores around the house uh, to benefit mother, but to go out and just like spend cash. It's the most impersonal thing you could possibly do or buy a card that they'll open and read for the day and then just throw in the trash. Unless they're a hoarder <laughs> and then they're just going to have like a box full of cards that they've never looked at for a second time. They just add another one to the pile. It's kind of strange to to all holidays, arguably, but certainly this one, to think of it in commercial terms rather than just appreciation of the women in our lives, which actually speaks to what we're going to be talking about today. Today, I want to talk about the Mothers of Dragonlance. And I'm not talking about Laura Hickman and Margaret Weiss, though arguably they are the Mothers of Dragonlance for sure. Uh, I'm talking about the actual characters mothers so the infellows the heroes of the lance their mothers and how interesting it is that we don't know all of the mothers and in fact some of really prominent people we don't know anything about the mothers so i'm going to get into that in just a second but uh kind of big uh mother's day for her oldest just got his master's in music from hell yeah Well, congratulations to the the child, that's amazing, or the young adult, I should say. Patrick, how you doing, man? Thanks for tuning in live. So it's been kind of a hectic week. I'm sort of suffering right now because we had some uh, pretty amazing barbecue last night, but it was really spicy and it's still affecting me, which is messed up. And I just finished a recipe for an upcoming um, Dragonlance Recipe episode And I'm like in the middle of collecting all the footage. And then I got to start writing and producing and putting it all together and stuff. And so my mind isn't quite 100% here. It's sort of 50% here, 25% on the video I got to make. And 25% on my stomach aching really, really badly. Which is just, I don't know, life I guess, right? Um, So yesterday's Dragonlance game went... Beautifully in my opinion. I had a great time. I'm so pleased with how the characters are really digging their teeth into the role-playing aspect of it and the fact that we get to adventure like that's one of my biggest complaints about what we've been doing thus far is that we've been hyper isolated in Calaman. And yes, you, you know sort of go out to do different things, but you always come back to that hub. But I like the idea of just getting out into the wilderness, exploring ruins and, and catacombs and dilapidated structures and, and you know, learning greater lore and stuff. And that's really what is, the game is turning into at this point. And so I had a great time. However, I did want to bring up for everyone who maybe didn't catch the, the episode yet, so you may not know, um, next week we're running another game, next Saturday. But I'm changing the time from 11.30 to 3.30 mountain time to 5.00 to 9.00 p.m. mountain time. So we're pushing it much later in the day. And that's just to allow me to spend time in the yard and do what I have to do for the yard, really. Uh, Mayonasium. (laughs) How you doing? I'm glad you caught it live. Welcome. Um, So the time change for the game is going to be a big deal. I don't suspect it's going to have any great impact on players. They've all agreed. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything you know goes off without a hitch. And I'm thinking, because we're not really flying through this adventure, I think next week I'm also going to do the same thing we did this week, where it's just pure adventuring and it's not going to be any Warriors of Crin. Because there is a Warriors of Crin scenario in the Northern Wastes that I want to run, but... I'm having a little bit of fun just playing with Dalimar and, like, Dalimar, before he's Dalimar the Dark, we get to meet him and see what he's like and experience some of the elven exiles who were forced out of uh, Sylvanisty because Lorak uh, pulled out that dragon orb and Kion Bloodbane sort of took over. The dragon armies reneged on their agreement and tried to invade Sylvanisty and they just couldn't get through. But now it's sort of trapped and twisted in Lorax Nightmare. And so they, um, he sent a contingency of elves to go search for ancient magic and stuff in the northern wastes. And that's where Dalimar is right now. So I've never read the novel Dalimar the Dark, so I don't know what it deals with. But I would love a sort of bookend um, piece that's between this Dalimar that we're getting to know and the Dalimar that is then the dark elf, kicked out. Uh, for wanting to be a black robe mage, I think that is going to be a very interesting, like sort of transition, and I'm going to be playing with that a little bit because again, we don't really have that information, and this is just a game, and so, you know, I can pretty much do whatever I want and, and still have fun. My goal is to keep it feeling Dragonlance, and you know, intertwine the characters with Dragonlance lore so they're a part of it and important. But uh, yeah, I think maybe, maybe Jenna. Is her name Jenna? (laughs) I forgot the name of one of the player characters. Well, anyway, the rogue spellcaster is going to have a fling with Dalimar, and I think it's going to be fun to explore what that's like, I think. Dalimar has a big role in your campaign. You'd love to see how someone else portrays him. Oh, awesome. Okay. Have you already gotten past the northern waste part in your game? Uh, Let me know when you have a second. So, in addition to all that, I have sort of cordoned off September and October to run through the uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Ravenloft campaign of When Black Roses Bloom, which is the Lord Soth Cythicus adventure. So, I'm going to be running that in September and October, and I just started sort of getting my stuff together and looking at the adventure, and it's like 36 pages. It shouldn't take the full eight weeks but it could depending on how role play we want to get and it may even take longer than that and so i'm gonna to have to try to rein in the storytelling and sec like segment it out for those eight weeks to make sure i have enough time but then i also have to relearn second edition i haven't played second edition in over 20 years like it's been that long so i've got to like relook at the uh, Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide. Learn how to play that. I've got to um, bone up on Ravenloft because I haven't played Ravenloft in well over 20 years as well. So I've got to look at you know the the rules for Ravenloft and stuff because I really want it to feel like it's Ravenloft. And you can argue that that's not really a Dragonlance thing to do on a Dragonlance channel, but it's Lord Soth, so I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> so I hope I hope you guys will dig it. And then um, I guess that's kind of it for the intro stuff. Should we just get into the meat and potatoes of the mothers of Dragonlance? Um, Going to start up a homebrew Dragonlance campaign in a couple months. Super excited. Oh, that's great. I'm planning on doing a series of videos for the Dragonlance setting series that I do that drop on Tuesdays every week. And I think what I want to do is adventure hooks in different genres because I really want to, hey, Chris, thanks for tuning in, man. Um, I really want to showcase how you can play literally any genre in Dragonlance and have it really feel like that genre. So whether it's a thriller, a suspense, a mystery, uh, you know, like a whodunit or something like that. Um, It could be an urban adventure. It could be a wilderness. It could be a horror-based campaign, pure romance. Like, I want to really dig in and showcase that Dragonlance is not just a wartime setting. It is so much more than just that. And and the diversity, that's why I'm doing these sort of nation videos, um, like uh, Kerr in War of the Lance, or Salamnia in War of the Lance era, for example. Because the more I know about these different nations, the more I can sort of plant those adventure seeds for other people and, and create these other videos. And after like the one that's dropping on Tuesday is going to be uh, Nordmar in the uh, War Lance era. And after researching Nordmar, oh my gosh, it is ripe for some really great jungle adventures like Conan the Barbarian, Tarzan, like some really crazy, primitive, barbaric, sort of uh, lost world-styled gaming, all in Nordmar. And, I mean, talk about an exciting place to explore if you've never read anything about it before. It's great, and I can't wait for that video to drop to see if you guys uh, feel the same way about it as I do. And, uh, you know, I want to do those little adventure hook ideas. Because I think not only is it going to help other people realize what you can really do, storytelling-wise, in Dragonlance, but it's going to showcase some locations that maybe you've never considered running an entire campaign in one location before. Or maybe you want to just see what it's like if you're, like, passing through a territory. Maybe there's an adventure hook that pulls you off for, you know, one of your sessions in that one area that is wildly divergent from everything else that the Dragonlance campaign you're running features. And it's just a way to add spice to Dragonlance. And there's also... uh, um, a, a book of layers that was specific to Dragonlands, and so I'd like to look at that and see if I can pull any of those uh, adventure seeds out and present them as well Cozen, uh, how you doing you're about to start Shadow the Dragon Queen using second edition mechanics Channel's great inspiration thank you very much for that uh, you're always watching the videos cheers Brazil nice nice I want to go down there so bad check it out um, if I ever go down there I'll try to hit you up <laughs> See if we can get a coffee or something, have a drink. All right, let's talk about some Mothers of Dragonlands. And I don't know, you tell me as I take a sip of my drink. Should we talk about the Mothers we know or should we talk about the Mothers we don't know first? Because there's some, there's some pretty important ones that we don't know. And I kind of want to frame it around what is the role of a Mother when it comes to the heroes of the lands? You know, what, what impact did that mother have on those people? And there's an obvious one, the Majers, but there's a lot less obvious ones that should be explored as well. So let me know what you think. All right. Um, I appreciate that, Chris, the, the tip there. That's very nice. Okay, here we go. You know, I'm just going to start with Roseman Majir, because why not? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So Rosamund Majir is Kitiara's mother and then Karaman and Raceland's mother, right? Um, she had twins. And if you could imagine being a mother giving birth to a Karaman baby, <laughs> a Karaman Majeer baby, you know he's a big baby. That's a lot to push out. I watched my wife deliver our two children, and it's not a pleasant experience for them <laughs> at all. You can only imagine if it's Karaman's big ass head, you know, coming out of there. Um, so, Rosamund, she was born and raised in Solace. Uh, she married uh, the mercenary Gregor Uth Matar and had Kidiar, of course. And then, after Gregor sort of abandoned her, she then remarried Gilan Majir, who is this sort of woodcutter. And depending on the version of their history, either he submitted Racelin into the. Um, uh, school of uh, sorcery, or it was, you know, the other guy. I can't remember his name right now. But Rosamond, she was a seer. She she was the way that I've always seen her, and and sort of interpreted her through all of the stories was that she was what, um, like our pilgrims. You know, like in the U.S., for example, like in the early seventeenth or the late seventeenth century. Um, it would be like what Puritans would call witches. You know, she she knew herbs, she knew how to heal people with natural remedies. Uh, she was just sort of that type of a person, but she also saw the future and she would have visions. And if you can imagine a world where you're you're in Dragonlance in the Age of Despair, you're starting to have visions. People are literally suffering from plague at different regional points as it sort of spreads all across Ancelon. People are very mistrusting and you start to have visions. You don't know what visions are. You just know that you're seeing things for no reason and it's affecting you. And it slowly degrades her mind because she cannot cope with what is real and what is not real because she just doesn't understand. She wasn't trained in, uh, uh, um, what is that called? Not seer. Um, she wasn't trained by the Wizards of High Sorceries to be a div- divination expert or anything like that. She All she knew was she was just experiencing it. So there must have been part of Rosamond's mind where she thought, I'm going crazy. Like, I'm seeing stuff that's not there. I'm missing in time, you know? Because if you're seeing things that happen in the future, you start to believe, well, maybe in this moment, I am in the future because I'm seeing what's happening right in front of me. How contextually do they understand linear time and what visions actually are in the age of despair where there was no education like you didn't have schools you know it was it was very much you just survive and hope that you don't get sick because you're gonna die of a cold or you're gonna die of the plague and you have to stay away from everyone and because she was like a natural remedy healer and stuff you know, she, she was probably exposed and probably helped a lot of the people that were suffering through that age of despair in her life. So I just find it interesting that she, as a woman, was probably suffering infinitely greater than people from the outside looking in thought she was suffering. Because all they saw was this sort of physical reaction to what she was experiencing. But there's nothing more terrifying than being in your head and, and not trusting what's real. How would she even know? She couldn't control it. And I love the idea that Raceland in earlier stories actually got that gift from her, that he could then foresee stuff. And that was sort of left on the drawing board in later stories. But I did love that at one time in the history, uh, he was a part of that. And so how could she possibly be there for Raceland or Karaman in any capacity? She couldn't even be there for herself. And talk about a devastating state to be in uh, as a human being um my best friend when i was a little kid his mother had ms and i only knew her when it was sort of the worst of it so she barely got out of bed and she was very irate and angry all the time because she was suffering and she didn't know how to process it or 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 share you know, it, everything that she was experiencing, it always turned negative with her. And it sort of raised a lot of discord between her and her kids and her husband who ultimately divorced her. They put her in a home and that's where she lived until she died. Um, and so if I'm reflecting as a young man at, at how she was affected with MS and how that affected even her state of mind and then extrapolate that out to Rosamund on how the twins and Kidiara, and especially Kidiara, because she knew Roseman before she was sort of lost, you know, before she was basically a vegetable in, of her own mind. To see your mother degrade so much from being the person that supported you, took care of you, loved you, and cared for you and everything, to turn then into nothing more than a piece of furniture that you had to take care of, that's got to be devastating. And then it's not just that, Kitiara also has brothers that she's got to look after. So Kitiara is as much of a mother to Karaman and Raceland, arguably more so than their actual mother Roseman ever was. So I just love that idea. Um, it's interesting that people in crin would think anyone is crazy in a world where magic can cause people to disappear or conjure. Well, you we also got to remember in the age of despair, for like 300 years, wizards weren't trusted. They you know I mean they were seen as bad or worse. As the uh, Knights of Salamnia. And so no one trusted anyone in those times. So even if she did, even if she was able to like go out and seek out the Wizards of high sorcery and and try to get them to assist her, I just I don't think she would have because of the stigma surrounding it. You know, I mean, even when it was Raceland's time years later, um, like it was like illusionist tricks and stuff. No one took it seriously. No one thought he would actually like, really get into it, you know? So I just thought that was really interesting. Hey, Horrific Podcast, how you doing, man? Stories about warped reality can be some of the best. I know! And it's not, like, I mean, just, like, suspense and thriller. Not knowing what's real. And that is the the real trait of Rosamund, <clears throat> Rosamund Magier that, that we're presented with when we first are exposed to her in some of those earlier stories. So... How could you not see Caramon and and believe his role with Raceland since their mother was Rosamond? So what I'm meaning by that is. Karaman sees himself like with Raceland as the other half of Raceland. Like they were supposed to be one person. One got all the strength and the other got all the intelligence, right? So they, they, because they're twins, he always looked after him and he knew he had to protect him. And he, he just felt this sort of connection to him. Would that connection have been so strong if they actually had a mother taking care of them? If Roseman wasn't in the state that she is in, would he be so obsessive about looking after and caring for Raceland? And I would make the argument that no, because he wouldn't need to be. Raceland would then, you know, go to his mother when there was an issue, or his mother would take care of him, but because she couldn't, Kitiara picked up the slack, but then she left. So it was only Karaman left. And so he, being the able one, took that burden upon himself to then look after and raise his own brother. And that that sinks, your parents define how you perceive the world as a child, right? So for most uh, children growing up, you see your parents and you sort of see them as a almost like a superhero. You just sort of think, well, adults all have it figured out. Like they're adults, they've grown up, they've lived long lives, they must understand everything that I don't understand. And then as soon as you become an adult, you realize like, no one knows shit. Everyone's an idiot. <laughs> Parents aren't superheroes. They're not smart. They're just as dumb as everyone else. And so you sort of break down that superhero figure that you have of your parents. But if you were raised with a parent who is completely incapacitated, then you never had that idea. And all you knew was, I cannot rely on them for anything. So I have to take that burden upon myself that changes how you perceive the world that changes how you engage with the world it strips you away of your childhood which i would argue is an incredibly important period in everyone's life so that they don't have to worry about adult issues until they are then adults themselves you're allowed just to sort of embrace your imagination and the experience of play and and you know those social situations that children have to learn early on, you know, whether it's on the playground or in a sandbox or in a school. Like, you have to understand the dynamics of social engagement and how to deal with other humans and conflict resolution and all that sort of thing. If you are then pushed into an adult situation because you, no one's taking care of you, then you're arguably never going to be able to experience those those uh, joys of, of falling on your face and having someone pick you up and give you hugs and kisses. You're going to have to just pick yourself up off of your own two feet, you know? I mean, it's it's going to be infinitely more challenging. And you're going to be an infinitely harder character than you would have been otherwise, potentially. Of course, all of this is, you know, it's all fiction. So play with it how you will. Um, So I I think... Rosamond had such a huge impact because she was incapable of being an actual mother to her sons. And that informed how Raceland and Karaman then moved forward and became who they are. And, you know, if I reflect back on my own mom, she was an artist. I grew up watching her do life drawing and um, working in newspapers as graphic designers and stuff. And I ended up doing the exact same thing. I don't think I did it because of her. But I was certainly inspired by what I saw her able to do. And so it forced me into art. And, you know, because I wanted to try my hand. And if she could do this, well, I wonder if I could do it. And then I just sort of, you know, took an entire career out of it. Um, I don't know if I would have been where I am doing what I do if it it wasn't for my mom. Like, arguably. And even though my mom is wildly religious, (laughs) and I am completely not... We, we still have that connection through art, you know? And, and we'll always have that because it's, it's a language that we share. Raceland at one point, shared the vision, being able to see and divine into the future like his mother. They would have shared that had she been conscious and able to really communicate with him. And can you imagine the different type of person that Raceland would have been If he had someone to connect with in those informative years, rather than be bullied and punished by his peers, if she could nurture and share those visions with Raceland, I think it would have completely changed the man he ended up being. And um, that just goes to show how important parents can be and arguably how incredibly important mothers are, you know, just to sort of wrap it around the day here. Alright, so I thought Rosamund was really interesting as a character. Let's look at the next one here that I have. And this is Elise Brightblade. This is an interesting one because we don't know a lot about her, but we do know that um, Angriff Brightblade sent Sturm Brightblade, his son, and his wife, Elise, to Solace because... Um, the in Salamnia, the local peasants were rising up against their lords, which were the Salamic Knights. In the Age of Despair, Salamnic Knights were seen as traitorous and they could have stopped the Cataclysm and they didn't. Uh, and to be fair, some Knights of Salamnia did sort of become robber barons, you know, in that sort of Age of Despair, not helping the view of the Knights for the other Knights who actually were good Knights, like Angrif Blightblatt. Brightblade, for example, and so when um, Viness, I'm sorry, when um, uh, Wistan, and Angriff Brightblade were with other knights defending Castle Brightblade, and they sent Elise and Sturm down to Solas in safety with one of his trusted uh, sir, uh, knights as well. You can imagine Elise's framework in her head. She's exiled. She's not with her husband anymore. She's with her son, but they're not going somewhere where they have a bunch of friends and a family support unit. They're fleeing in the middle of the night for their lives. They don't know if they're going to make it out of the territory. They're not gonna, they don't know if they're going to be able to make it across New Sea to get to Ibanicinia. All they know is that peasants that we used to protect and care for, people who worked our land and we took care of them, are now turned against us and trying to murder us. How am I gonna get my son out of this situation alive? My husband, I'm never gonna see him again. You know, he's probably gonna die. And so as a a woman in that situation, you can imagine the terror that she's having to deal with. Because again, this isn't modern life. This is that sort of medieval fantasy era. Women did not have rights that men had at all. You know, they were literally second-class citizens. They were relegated to certain roles and they had to fulfill those roles. And it was incredibly rare for any one of them to step outside of that and actually flourish as a respected individual. Usually they were shunned or murdered, seen a witch and burned or, you know, so for her, she immediately had to go from taking care of the household, supporting her husband, taking care of her son to protecting her son, the role that her her husband used to take. And that's, that's a really intimidating situation to be in, especially because they had to go from all the way in northern Salamnia, all the way through Salamnia, past the Kalen Mountains, in, past the New Sea, into Abanisenia, uh, into past all the Plainsman tribes, into Solace. That's a hell of a journey for anyone, let alone someone who doesn't know how to fight, who has never had to deal with... She's, she's a, a high-born lady. She's never had to like, suffer a day in her life. Now she suddenly has to become one of those pioneers who is like just traveling the land hoping that they actually get to where they're trying to get to because that's the only place of safety that they know of in this age of despair. God, it's great. It's so good. So like um, the more you read about Dragonlance, the more you've come to appreciate the grim, dark Greek tragedy. Yeah, running through it. Do you think that some some main d &D players have trouble with? I do actually, um, Colin. Thanks for bringing that up too. I don't think people appreciate, okay, so I'm projecting, I'm just being solipsistic here because I'm assuming people react the way I do, right, Um, when it comes to Dragonlance. I didn't contextualize the reality of Dragonlance until I was an adult. When I was a kid reading it and just playing it, it was just like, oh, this is just a fantasy setting that I really like because I want to fly dragons or I want to, you know, uh, be in a war or, you know, do whatever. I didn't really think about what the actual state of the Dragonlance world was during the War of the Lance era in the Age of Despair. Now, as an adult reflecting back through my own life experience, through other stories I've read, other films that I've watched, I start to realize how truly desperate Dragonlance is as a setting. And I think people just attach that idea of high fantasy to it, that sort of nomenclature. And they think, oh, it's, you know, castles and dragons and, you know, the bad guys lose and the good guys win. But that's not Dragonlands at all. The bad guys win as much as the good guys do. And they're never exterminated. There's never a time of actual peace for any generation. Every single generation suffers that has ever existed in all of Dragonlands, except for maybe back in the age of starbirth or the age of dreams for brief you know stints i mean it's from the beginning it's been slavery and domination just like our world and i kind of respect that about it because it doesn't try to pretend to be like a princess bride world or you know a sort of like a happy fantasy land where maybe one bad thing happens but other than that everyone's living you know pretty productive lives and in relative safety. There's no safety here. The only safety is what you can uh, create for yourself with the tools you have at your disposal. That's the Dragonlance that I know and love now as an adult reflecting on it. And I don't think many people do. And I think it's interesting your perspective, Colin, on this because you came into it, of course, diving in, playing in Saga Edition um, without any idea about the actual setting. And so you have a completely different understanding of it than the people who read the books for years and decades and then tried playing it you know i mean it's a completely different experience for you and for you to come through with that perspective which is what i ended up as but you're starting with it just goes to show your understanding of the setting you know so much better than uh many people who just say they absolutely love it they don't even fully understand it uh, mothers are the thread that hold a family together yeah jason i i think um for the majority of situations that, that's true. We have to be fair and, and be honest. And some mothers are outright terrible. Some mothers abuse their children or beat them or kill them uh, or just ignore them. You know, some mothers aren't attentive and um, aren't caring and concerning at all. Um, some of them are toxic. And it's just because of the own life experience that they suffered. You know, some usually when it comes to trauma and abuse, it's passed down and it's learned behavior. And so when you do come across people like that, it's because they suffered when they were kids. And so they're just sort of repeating that, that tragic behavior. Um, So let's not put rose colored glasses on and pretend that every woman and every mother is great. There are some that are great. But not all of them. And that's not to say guys are any different. We're just as horrible, if not worse. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be fair here. But let's get back to Elise because I think she's interesting. Um, she's a mother like I grew up with and all the kids in my neighborhoods grew up with. She let Sturm run around, go eat dirt and play in the dirt and play with sticks and swords. And, you know, she, he just had to come home for dinner. That's the parenting that I grew up with. It, you didn't have watches or... And maybe you had like a, swi- a swatch or something that you just sort of prided yourself because it was like a Disney, you know, Mickey Mouse swatch or something. But I never grew up with watches or anything like that. We didn't have phones. You know, that was, you had a landline that your mom was usually on gossiping with other people in the neighborhood. You never called anyone. You just, as soon as the sun went up, you went outside... And you didn't come home until the sun went down, or your mom was yelling for you outside for dinner. That's how you communicated. And that's that's how Elise raised Sturm. It was literally just go out. I can't stand being around this young, rambunctious kid. Go play swords with all your friends and, uh, you know, in solace. And that's how Sturm was raised. But he was always through these tales. So she would then, of course, she wanted to instill in Sturm uh, his legacy, which is. His father's a knight of Salamnia. He, the protectors of the land, they looked after and protected people as a a profession. And there's genuine honor. It's the same that I got when I was a soldier. You know, I, I never really saw being a soldier as particularly interesting. It was a way for me to get college money so that I could then go to college and do what I do today. But... I never saw it as anything other than this is a step I have to go through in order to get to where I want to get to. And then a battalion commander came down and he had this long conversation with uh, our entire battalion. And he was talking about the honor of what it means to be a soldier. And it completely recontextualized that to me. And so I can only imagine that's the same idea that Illis is instilling into Sturm throughout his entire youth. About you will one day be a knight of salamnia like your father. You will live with honor and conduct yourself with courtesy, chivalry, respect, and you'll protect those who are weaker than you. And you'll stand up to people who who are trying to to bully others or trying to tear down society. And there's something genuinely honorable about that in this sort of uh, fantasy world. And especially in the time when no one even liked Knights of Salamnia. And yet there's this one family who is torn asunder they could easily turn their back on the order, saying, the order led us to nothing but ruin. It destroyed my life. It, it ruined my husband. Uh, it made me a refugee, and now I'm looking after my son in this podunk village in Ibanicinia. But instead, she kept retelling and kept that fire alive about what it meant to be a knight in Sturm's eyes. And that dominated his entire life, so much so, that the honor of the Knights of Salamnia only came back because of Sternbrightblade and because of his sacrifice. Every other Knight of Salamnia didn't give a damn about any of that. They only concerned themselves with personal power, personal possession, and land. He didn't care about any of those things. He just wanted to live up to the idea of his father, because that's what his mother taught him. And there's something genuinely beautiful about that um lady kepper how you doing thanks for tuning in live uh let's see patrick what's up thanks for tuning in uh the phone had a 30 foot cord for private conversations yes it did you could like drag it like cord underneath like doors and closed doors and stuff and if you had two phones in your house someone could just like pick up the phone you have to scream at them i'm on that phone yeah it was a whole big deal Forgot about Sturm, Lord Soth will kill all. Sean, you might be, you might be uh, obsessed, I think, about Lord Soth. Uh, Mike, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in, man. So I really respected Illis as a mother because, I again, if it wasn't for her and her ability to not only protect her son and take care of him, void of anyone protecting her as she was raised to exist in as, as a dichotomy, um she instilled that passion for what it meant to be Unidas Lamney in him. And that drove him literally his entire life until the very end. So that's a, that's a great mother right there. Um, Okay. So the next one I have is Elansa Sungold. Do you guys know whose mother that is? You're a wannabe death knight forever looking for self <laughs> good on you man everyone needs a dream (laughs) everyone needs goals (laughs) Um, mine's just to get through get through this without crying (laughs) talking about mothers I get all weepy and emotional Um, so Alonza Sungold is Tannis half Elvin's mother and of course he never knew her because she died before uh, he was ever old enough to know or you know remember anything but she's an interesting character because um, I think her absence ...is the reason, uh, is what shaped Tanis's life. It was in her absence that he was then a- adopted into the canon family... ...and raised uh, in this, you know, tight-knit family with Porthios and Gilthanas and Lorana, And th- having that sort of brotherly uh, love was great... ...up until the point where everyone started realizing... ...because there's one thing to just be young and playing around... But there's a point where the poison of society leaks into your mind. Um, some of that learned trait is racism or bigotry. That leaks in from the outside. That's not inherent in people. And so once that starts leaking in, we see that reflected in Tannis half Elvin's existence because no longer is he just Tannis, our adopted brother. He is Tannis half human. He's not one of us, he's not good enough to be one of us. Half of his blood is poison. It's, it's dark and vile and disgusting. And it's gonna make him age prematurely and be thicker and bruter and, and just as, as vile as all the other humans. And they tormented him. If he had a mother there to protect him, I don't think it would have been as bad because at least then she could have shared stories about who his father actually was and that he wasn't the child of rape um, that everyone said he was that he was loved, that, that people actually care for him. And of course, it would have only been his mom in this situation, but at least it would have been that. He didn't even have that at all. So you can't help but think that he was tormented because of the absence of this woman. And Alonza didn't have an easy life. You know, she was married to the brother of the Speaker of the Stars, um, well, here, let me make sure I'm saying this right, because I was Speaker of the Sun. I was getting mixed up um, to the brother of the Speaker of the Sun and uh, Catherine, Catherine and Canon, And um, she, she was then kidnapped and, uh, you know, sort of lived with this kidnapping thing. And then as soon as uh, she uh, sort of almost like a Stockholm syndrome situation, I think she actually started liking these brutes because she started seeing the quality the elven culture from their perspective, which is wildly different from the outside versus the inside. And you can say that about any culture really. And so she started seeing the world through, I think his name was bronze eyes or something like that. And um, then she saw her husband for who he actually was. And he is uh, a fanatic. He actually tried to murder her once he realized that she had, just had sex he didn't know that she willingly did it or whether she willingly did it or not she just in order to survive that's why she did it not because she loved the guy but um he didn't care he just saw her as tainted and she didn't deserve to live anymore because again women are second-class citizens in this universe and so she doesn't have a choice anymore she's spoiled we must destroy her and i'll just get a new wife like that's his headset that's his mind's mind, his frame of perspective here, and so, she outright rejects him. I think it Braun ended up killing him or something, uh, and then you know she was sort of rescued and taken back, uh, and had Tannis. and then she died and uh, everything. So it's been a little you know a few months since I read the story, so it's not one hundred percent fresh in my head, but it's just the idea that it was through her ex- horrible, tragic experience that she had a new perspective on the culture that she was raised in. And that informed, I think, ultimately Tannis's fate, because if she, if she didn't end up sleeping with him, she would have been murdered and Tannis wouldn't have existed. If she um, allowed her husband to murder her, of course, I, I don't think the uh, infant inside of her was old enough to survive without her. Uh, so Tannis would have been you know, dead and, and not living. Um, I can't remember how, how far along she was when she was rescued. But um, I just think it's interesting that in the absence of a mother, you, you don't have that safety net. You know what I mean? And again, not all mothers give that. So not everyone is going to have that same experience. But you know, for the sake of the conversation, let's say that mothers are there to support and nurture their children. And they do that. So Tannis never had any of that. It was always just angst and um, hatred thrown at him. You know, just vile bigotry. And with without a supporting element, he ended up actually arguably in a really good headspace, but it took him a lot of suffering to get there. And and that, then, is because of his surrogate father through Flint Fireforge, the dwarf, the dwarf. If it wasn't for Flint, I think Tannis would have been a evil mercenary. Probably working with the dragon armies, with Kitiara. Uh, 100%. But because he did have that positive influence of Flintfire Forge you know it sort of turned him around so is interesting in her absence and in her perspective I think as a mother alright so what do you guys say Mike thanks man I appreciate that uh, Tannis' mother Alonsa Sungold had the most tragic story in all the Dragonlance lore it was brutal we, your own husband is trying to murder you I mean that's because you're now tainted and filthy get out of here Man, guys... <laughs> guys are the worst. We're the worst. I mean, come on. <laughs> Let's be honest. All right, so that was Alonso. Tearsong is the next one. You could probably guess whose mother this one is. So Tearsong is Goldmoon's mother. She's uh, the basically the the queen, the princess of the Quaishu tribe, which is uh, basically a, a native tribe, but they're more like the the native tribes in their their structures and stuff they're more like um um they're, they're kind of more like i don't know like mayans or or incas than like native tribal indigenous people of north America you know like as as people know or as Indians you know they're they're not really like that they look like that in all of the artwork but the way that they live they have like Adobe structures of, you know, mud and grass for, for construction. They have multi-story buildings and walls around their cities. And I'm um, they weren't exactly like teepee, nomadic people, you know. Um, I'm, I'm sure I sounded like an ignorant asshole going through that. But just bear with me here. I'm trying to articulate this fantasy world um, with our real world cultures. So uh, she ended up dying in the Kueshu Sea. Um, their royalty as future gods and goddesses to then pray to, because again, this is in the age of despair. The gods had abandoned the people as far as all the people on on Krin know. And uh, in the absence of the gods, you make up your own lore. And so, much like many indigenous peoples of our world who looked to the sky and and saw their ancestors reflected in the stars, that's kind of what the quayshu did. And so Gold moon, you know, she was born of privilege. She was a princess of the tribe. She would then, you know, ultimately become uh, the the queen of the Kweshu tribe after she married, you know, that, that that princess itself. And so when her mother died, she saw her literally as a goddess. Um, and I think that's an interesting way to look because I, I started this conversation early on saying that as kids, we see our parents as sort of superheroes or or infallible because we don't know any better. In this case, culturally, she literally was. You know, she's the queen. She is the co-ruler of the entire Kueshu tribe. How do you live up to that as a, a young woman? You know, like, my mom is literally the the princess, the queen. Um, I'm saying princess and queen because the notes here are saying princess. But she was, like, the, the ruler of the tribe was her husband. So, in my mind, that makes her queen, not, not princess. So, um... Literally seeing your parent, after they have died, ascending to godhood. I mean, (laughs) that's a lot to live up to. And especially then reflecting on on Goldmoon, when she was ostracized. And uh, she was uh, initially in, there's a a short story. I can't remember what the short story is called, but it deals with um, Riverwind and Goldmoon Moon. Um, sort of being kicked out and going into a cave where she was uh, supposed to go to sort of worship her mother and her mother appeared to her and I think Mishakal, the goddess, appeared to her as well and she realized that her mother wasn't a goddess and so she went back to the tribe and tried to convince everyone else like, look, they're not gods and goddesses anymore. The gods and goddesses had never left. They're still here and no one believed her and it was a big, you know, sort of hullabaloo. But um, Goldmoon was definitely informed by by expectation. And you see that in how she reacts to Riverwind when she comes into contact with the heroes of the Lance. the whole time. She's like, I have to be daughter of my father. I am the leader of the Quaishu from this time on. I have to, I can't be just gold moon. I have to be princess. I have to be the leader. And so it, created a fracture in her relationship with Riverwind because he just wanted to love her for who she was, but she was incapable of being that person yet. And so you, you saw that struggle and that dynamic throughout the entire first book, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. And I thought it was very interesting because all of that is because of who her mother was, and because of how her culture celebrated her mother. So you you gotta sort of <clears throat> hand it to Tearsong, who without her influence over gold moon i don't know that gold moon would have been able to bear the burden of being the first true cleric of mishakal in the age of despair you know because she was raised to be that independent individual that leads people in the absence of that i think she might have crumbled under that weight or just not picked up the mantle altogether you know um, did the Kueshu have the same belief system prior to the Cataclysm? No, no, they actually believed in the gods prior to the Cataclysm. But um, And then there's another story that says that the Kueshu are actually um, descendants of Salamnic knights and, and rather than actually just always having been, you know, plainsmen, which is kind of a weird thing to do, but whatever. <laughs> so in researching this, that's actually the last mother of all of the Heroes of the Lance that's ever been named. Kinda weird when you think about the impact mothers actually have on kids, right? So for example, Flint Fireforge never named the mother, not once. She was referred to as mama briefly, but that was it. She had like 12 kids or so, 12 Dwarven kids. You'd think you could just give her a damn name if you're gonna have her deliver 12 babies. They give all the men names, they give all the children names, why not give her a name? It doesn't make any sense. Another one, Taslov Burfoot, no idea who his mother's name is, what what his mother's name is, or his father's for that matter. But, and and again, you know, Kender are different because once they get of age about, you know, roughly like human, you know, young, uh, old teenager age, they go off on their wanderlust and they start roaming the land, but they always come back after their wanderlust is over. So you'd think that there would still be some sort of like loving family unit, even though it would be in their own cultural way. But we don't even get a name, nothing. We, we go through all of the other companions for the most part, or, or all the other infellows anyway, but not Tasselhoff. Another one that's really, really weird that I never thought about until researching this Lorana. No one ever named who Lorana's mother was. Porthios' mother, Gilthanas' mother, the wife of the Speaker of the Sun. Is it the sun or the stars? I, again, I, I mix it up, so I apologize for that for people who are freaking about it. Um, the Sun, Speaker of the Sun. She doesn't have a name. She, she helped raise Tanis half. Elvin, arguably, Porthios, Gilthanas, and Lorana. trained Lorana what it was to be a maiden no one doesn't even give her a name at all. That's messed up. Give the woman a name. She's not even mentioned. It's, and it's, it's worse because at least Flint's mother was referenced as mama. No one ever brings up the Speaker of the Sun's wife or Gilthanas's, Porthios, or Lorana's mother ever. But you would think that she would be a pretty important influence on them, right? <laughs> Talk about just an oversight, it's insane. So uh, Tassloff's mom was ironically trampled by a woolly mammoth. That's the woolly mammoth. That's the story he's always trying to tell. No one wants him to tell. Uh, hey, Kirst, how you doing, man? Thanks for tuning in live. Uh, is the wanderlust similar to a vision quest? Does that explain the loose grip on reality around them? Uh, they just have an insatiable curiosity as a species. Uh, but their wanderlust is—they just, you know, they want to experience the world. They and many of them like to map it as well as like culturally, is you know, supposed to be that sort of thing. But um yeah, I mean you could see it as a vision quest. I mean they just sort of go off on their sort of heroic adventure, and then when they're done, they go back home. They have kids and then their kids go off and do it. So you just have this revolving door of Kender tormenting the land. <laughs> because they have to procreate, right? In order to have more Kender babies to then torment future generations. Why don't you name them? They're kind of important. Especially when Tasselhoff is the R2-D2 of Dragonlance. He saves everyone all the time. He also gets them in the situations that he saves them from. But still. But still. Like, you think you deserve it, right? I don't know. I guess not. So, uh, I thought it was weird that Lorana didn't have a mother. They <laughs> never mentioned her at all. Which is really insane. Because if she had a mother, if her mother was alive, which she can't be because she was never mentioned, but if she was, then when they went over to southern Aragoth and uh, when Lorana and the companions were coming up from Ice Reach with the dragon orb and they sort of, you know, reintegrated with her family, the mom would have been right there. But she wasn't. Totally MIA. No mom. That's sad. All right, Tika... Tika didn't have a mom either. First of all, let's just talk about the reality of how humans exist. Women. That's how humans exist. (laughs) You know, you can argue chicken or the egg, but it's women. Women, they carry the kids, they nurture the kids, they grow the kids in their freaking womb. If it's not for women, there would be no human species. Women are the default of what it means to be human. It takes an extra chromosome to make a man. So... Why would you not take the time to name a mother? It doesn't even have to be an integral part of the story. Just if you mention the father, mention the mother. That simple. We get Tika's father, who was a petty thief, and she sort of took up on that and left. But it's never mentioned what happened to the mom, at least not to my knowledge. Let me know if if I'm missing it. I agree with you, Mike. It's very weird, man, Um, for characters not to have mothers. But, like it's an important potential of character development. If you lost your mother early on, if your father abducted you from the mother dynamic because, you know, they had a fallout or something. Like, there's so many great story elements of why the mother's not there that you could use to then inform the character and the decisions the character makes, thereby fleshing out the character in a more realistic way. But rather than do that very easy work, they're just like, meh, let's just move on. (laughs) And I get it. It's a fantasy series targeted toward kids. This is not for adults like me. I am the weird one that's obsessed with this stuff. But still, if I was a kid, I kinda would wanna know. Like, you bring it up and you're like, oh yeah, they didn't ever mention it. Huh, I wonder why. And there were women writing these stories. There were women writing these modules and these adventures. So you would think that it would be on their mind. It's just kind of weird, right? All right. So aside from Tika not having a mother or Lorana not having a mother or Tassloff not having a mother or Flint not having a mother named Riverwind (laughs) doesn't have a mother named either what the hell is happening? The father's not actually named at all either. He's just mentioned as sort of an outcast because he believes in the old gods. And so they sort of have confined themselves to the outer reaches of the Kueshu culture. But the like the mother has to go along with it. She, you know, if she didn't, then she sort of ostracized the son and the father and she stayed with the Kueshu tribe, you know, worshiping their ancestors rather than the gods. Huge potential for character development that is just squandered for no reason. It bothers me. Does it bother any of you? Like it really, the more I talk about it and the more I think about it, it drives me insane that they haven't mentioned this stuff. Especially Lorana, who is such a hugely impactful character on the entire saga. Ugh, not even having one. my mom. So messed up. The mother analogy of short stories about the companions' moms would have been awesome. Anthology. Yeah, that would be interesting. It'd be funny if they, like, all hated each other. (laughs) So the kids had to, like, go play, you know, in secret together because the moms didn't want them hanging out with those, you know, dirty, uh, I don't know, dirty Kinder or the the brute Karaman or the, you know, the sort of stuck-up Sturm who wants to be a knight and he'll never be a knight because he's just a stupid little kid. You know, like parents judge other parents. And so they will allow their kids overtly to see other kids based on those kids' parents. I would not allow my kids to go to someone's house unless I met their parents. And based on that interaction would then inform whether I let them go hang out over there or whether they have sleepovers and stuff. So it's kind of important as a kid to have your parents sign off on your friends in most cases like i remember i had a a really really good school friend because i bussed to school and um he was not you know he was sort of uh he was like a rocker i mean i grew up in the 80s and so you know he was a, a rock and roll guy we listened to heavy metal and that's sort of what we were we both had long hair he he was the one that like got me to smoke for the first time. And I smoked for like six years of my life because of him. He, he's the first one that introduced me to marijuana. And I got high with him for the first time. And he was a hugely impactful friend. And he, he was very meaningful to me. I actually used to paint the um, artwork that Beauvais did in the uh, Chronicles uh, chapter heads. I would like do watercolor paintings of those. And then he would buy them because he liked him so much. And so we just had this really great friendship. My mom would never let me hang out with him because one, he was Catholic. My my parents are Mormon. Um, And not to say that all Mormons are bigoted like that, but my mom was. She didn't like me hanging out with him because he had long hair and he smoked. Uh, She didn't like me hanging out with him because she didn't know their parents. Uh, And so it, it affected me because I had this really, truly great friend who accepted me for who I was and no one else ever did. I was bullied, you know, like most other kids in in uh, middle school, but this guy got me. He understood me, you know, like he he. I actually started uh, like uh, he gave me his or old school Dungeon Master's guide from Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, like the old like cartoony painted one, not the new Elmore one that they released later on. Like it was him that really got me into uh, Dungeons and Dragons, even more than the friends that I played the game with. So. You know, and I couldn't even hang out with them because of my mom. And so, moms have huge impact on how kids get along with other kids and how they ultimately evolve into young men and women. And to not even show them in this ah, oh, it's such a tragedy, man. Uh, don't play with Tazlov kids; he steals. Yeah, for sure, Chris. You know that people were saying that. Definitely, Flint was saying that. <laughs> Um, All right, so that's all I had to talk about today on Mother's Day. I hope you guys uh, give your mothers a call. If you have a bad relationship with your mom, realize that you're an adult now and uh, you don't have to hang on to any of that anxiety or discord. You can choose to let it go. And uh, if you don't want to engage with them, you don't have to. Just don't let them hover over you in your mind and, and dominate your thoughts because... You're grown and you get to define your own path. If you do have a good relationship with them or you do appreciate the influence that they had on you, let them know, you know, just reach out. It doesn't take long, just a short phone call. They'll appreciate it. And who knows? You may have come to a new understanding about who they are as a human being and sharing that new understanding with them can build a friendship or something. Um, so always being open to the possibility. Ah, oh, Mike, stop. You're spoiling me. Uh, Always be open to the possibility of growth and connection or getting rid of the hangups that you may still be holding on to. Because like I was saying earlier, not all parents are good. Not all parents provide a, a healthy atmosphere to be raised in. And so it's not your fault. You didn't choose it. It's just the random chaos of the universe that you ended up there. Don't hold on to it. Let it go and take ownership of your life and your actions. You don't need negativity. It's a choice whether or not you keep it a part of your life. Um, All right. Only two likes on this stream. What the hell, people? Come on. (laughs) Hook it up. Uh, Thanks, Colin. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is all I had for today. Um, That is all the time. What do you think of mothers and how they're written or not written? in Dragonlance series? Is it important to know the parentage of the Heroes of the Lance to help inform their characters? Does it matter to you at all? Let me know in the comments below. You can always email me at info at dlsaga.com. And uh, if you're joining live, you could be doing anything you want. The fact that you're tuning into this, I genuinely appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Have a great Mother's Day. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel. Ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos and click that like button. It all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga even when it fails to mention the mothers. <laughs> My is Adam. Till next time, Sláinte